Please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Hey, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Grace. And, um, and I just want to tell you my heart is full this morning. I'm seeing... Folks that we haven't seen in uh, in a long time, and new and new friends and old, and it's good. It's really good to be together. So welcome, welcome back, uh, welcome for the first time. We're glad that you're here, and you're, and we're glad that uh, you've decided to spend this time of your life and this week opening God's Word with us. We are. Um, we've been in a, uh, in a fall sermon series on the book of Ephesians, and we've reached this uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll do my best uh, to bring you up to speed as we go if uh, this is your, your first time. Uh, but uh, let's, uh, let's look at God's Word. Lord, I uh, pr- pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, I'm fascinated uh, particularly by the character of Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. He's, I think, my favorite. If you're familiar with the story, you know that Sam is a hobbit and uh, actually a gardener uh, at the beginning, really sort of a side character uh, something of a sidekick. He lives in the, a little corner of the world that is known as the Shire. And in the Shire, the biggest crisis of any day or week is who is or isn't invited to the party. And yet, uh, through a series of really, as it seems, simple decisions to be a faithful friend and, to, and Sam's resolve to do well whatever is put in front of him, Uh, he soon discovers the fact that there is a great war raging for all of creation, Uh, a war that will one day overtake the Shire if something is not done. 
And, uh, and, and through that process of his simple faithfulness, he ultimately becomes an adventurer, a hero who helps to determine the fate of all of Middle Earth. And he returns home with a newfound appreciation for simpler things and a new knowledge of how critical protecting those simple things is. For some readers of the book of Ephesians, uh, shifting now to this passage in chapter 6 will feel a little bit like grinding gears. Wait a minute, uh, now we're reading about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, it's a, it seems like a halting transition. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to walk in love together in the, the common relationships of a household, husband and wife, parent and child, master and servant, and now, warfare. <laughs> like, whoa, what? <laughs> uh, cosmic battle. But Paul seems to be very clearly implying that there is a lot more at stake in our pursuit of faithfulness in those day-to-day things. How we walk uh, day-to-day is what Ephesians uses. That's the phrase that Ephesians uses to describe our day-to-day life. How we walk. Um, Paul begins this morning with this transition finally. He begins to the final section of his letter to the, the, the church in Ephesus, and he's going to make a summary of his teaching. He's not departing from the things that he's already said, but he's looking at those same things from a new and a, a, a really pivotal perspective. He's adding a new and, and critical motivation to pursue and do those things uh, that he has already said are what it looks like to Submit to one another in love out of reverence for Christ. He says there's a lot more at stake than you realize in the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles. There's a lot more going on there than just who gets invited to the party. There's a lot more at stake in the mystery of marriage and who does or doesn't sleep on the couch tonight. There's a lot more at stake in the work of discipling Christian children and navigating the workplace with integrity. There's more going on under the surface than meets the eye. In fact, each of these things, Paul would have us realize, is a tiny and yet crucial battle in a greater war. A cosmic war, as Paul describes it. And in, in, that, in that conflict, the fate of humanity and the hearts of those who uh, would follow Christ hang in the balance. One token, a scholar says, true heroism is hobbit-sized. In the everyday heroism of someone who says, I don't know the way, but I will be steadfast. So let's take a look at this passage uh, today in two parts. The armor of God uh, will look first at knowing your enemy, And then second, at the armor of God. So let's begin, knowing your enemy. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done so, having done all, to stand firm. Who is the real enemy? The first question I want to ask. When we, uh, we can learn uh, two things about the answer to that question from verses 11 and 12. Who is the real enemy? Uh, it's a, uh, in 11 and 12, there's a call for believers to stand against schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. First, Paul identifies that there is always a deeper battle going on in a believer's life than the issues and the conflicts that appear on the surface. Uh, the things, the, the small outcomes and the small conflicts that we are uh, preoccupied with have uh, deeper implications. This spiritual battle is one that is spoken of throughout the scriptures. It's one that has been waged, we're told, by the, by the Bible. It's a, there's been a spiritual battle going on since before Eve and Adam were deceived in the garden. It's a personal battle. The passage identifies that there is an enemy uh, who is a person. And it identifies a, an enemy by name, the devil, and this is important, I think, because it tells us two things. First, it tells us that in a biblical worldview, evil is not an impersonal force. It's not uh, some kind of uh, influence out there. Biblically speaking, evil is not the, the yin to the, good, to the yang of goodness, right? Uh, evil is rebellion against God, and against his creation, and against his will, and, against, and this rebellion has a leader, the, the scriptures tell us, a figurehead, the devil, who is not even, not even close to being the yin to God's yang. He's a creation of God himself, we're told he's a fallen angel in Revelation 12. Uh, someone who has turned against his maker and is hopelessly scheming to destroy everything that brings God glory. That's why he goes by other names as well. The scripture tells us that he is a liar and a tempter and a deceiver and a murderer and an adversary. And that means evil is personal. Not only because the devil is personal, but because he is, he is after you and me. Personally. We are men and women, boys and girls, created in the image of God for his glory. There is an element of truth to that feeling you sometimes get when you say, is someone out to get me? Right? It feels like stuff is stacked against me. The devil's deception of Eve and Adam was personal. Did God really say the devil's temptation of Jesus in the desert was incredibly personal, uh, appealing to his human needs and wants, and yet had Jesus succumbed like Adam, we would have no Savior. How little we really understand about the ramifications of the little temptations and the little deceptions that hamper us every day. It was just an apple in a garden. Who knew? So first, evil is personal. Second, uh, when it says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and then goes on to describe spiritual forces and powers, it's pointing out the nature 
of the spiritual rebellion that's going on around us, but it's also reminding us that the person that you are disagreeing with right now is not the ultimate enemy. Those people, whoever they are, making your life difficult with their opposition or even truly carrying out evil plans against you are not the ultimate enemy. In fact, they too are image bearers who have come under attack, who have been led away from the truth of the gospel and the scriptures. It's hard to overstate how helpful that posture and perspective can be. It can go so far in your ability to engage conflict and difficulty if this is the posture that you take to realize my mom is not my enemy. My boss is not the ultimate enemy. Uh, my neighbor is not the ultimate enemy. Putting myself into their shoes and trying to perceive their brokenness and their need will revolutionize the way that I engage in conflict. While you may have great difficulty with that person, while uh, you may uh, struggle deeply to find a way to have relationship and operate together, they do not qualify as the ultimate enemy bent on destroying you and your God and all of his plans for redemption. They need saving too. And so we're learning that evil is personal and, uh, and that it, uh, understanding that helps us to understand uh, even those who we have great and deep conflict with. So uh, why is this enemy so dangerous and so desperate and so furious? We need to be reminded that Ephesians chapter 1 says that God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. To see a parallel there between the descriptions of the powers that uh, has set Christ over in his death and resurrection. The devil is desperate and furious because he's already defeated. We can sometimes spend so much time thinking about what Christ's death means for us and my forgiveness and my redemption personally uh, that, we, uh, that we fail to realize that there was so much more going on when Jesus said, it is finished from the cross. He was declaring not only our redemption and our forgiveness, he was talking about the defeat of evil, about the death blow to Satan and the beginning of the end of the rebellion against God. The classic Latin term is Christus Victor, Jesus victorious over evil. And so uh, the famous hymn writer Isaac Watts says, Hell and your sins resist your course, but hell and sin are vanquished foes. Your Jesus nailed them to the cross and sang the triumph when he rose. So if the devil is defeated, why is he so dangerous? Well, remember that some of the bloodiest and deadliest battles of World War II took place after the Allies had already taken Normandy and essentially defined what the end of the war would be. Remember that some of the most heinous 
racial atrocities in American history took place after the Emancipation Proclamation. A defeated enemy who is not yet vanquished can be terribly dangerous. They're, they're, they're desperate in their plight to take as many others with them as they go. That's the picture that the book of Revelation gives us of the devil, the, the, the fantastic illustration in Revelation 12 describes a defeated dragon being thrown down from heaven and swinging wildly as he falls, trying to bring as many with him as he can. That sheds some light then on Paul's instructions to be strong in the Lord. He says uh, to stand against. He says to stand firm, be strong in the Lord. Did you notice that it doesn't say there's a spiritual battle going on and you need to defeat the devil? This is all up to you. The devil, we're told by the gospel, is defeated. And all we need to do is stand together with Christ in that victory. It's what believers do, our passage says, it's what believers will do on that day. We're looking forward to a day when uh, the, 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 the curtain is peeled back and we see the reality of that spiritual warfare and, and see believers standing with Christ in victory. And the passage tells us that it's something that we're invited to do in the evil day. And you and I each know what kind of day in our own lives qualifies for that. Those days and moments when temptation is at its peak. When there's a means and an opportunity and a deniability to give in to that temptation. Or when the door opens for us to finally avenge ourselves on and tear down that person who has been our nemesis. The call from Ephesians 6 is not to vanquish all evil from the world and take justice into our own hands. Jesus has already done that. We're simply called to stand firm and stand with Christ and wait patiently while God finishes saving those who have not yet heard. So what does that look like? Let's look at the armor of God. Doesn't take long if you're reading The Lord of the Rings, or really, uh, if you watch the movies. Uh, it doesn't take long to realize that Samwise, Gamgee, um, and his, compa- his companion Frodo Baggins are not magical. Um, they're not elves who have magic powers. They're not Aragorn or any of the other sort of enchanted creatures in Middle-earth. Uh, hobbits are little people with hairy feet. That's what they are, and they have no otherworldly powers or even really physical prowess, as it were. Frodo is initially so weak he can barely even get out of the shire on his own power without help from a friend like Sam. But along the way, he's given gifts. He's given things that are not his own, a sword, A sword made by elves that protects him from evil. And a famous ring of power that makes him invisible when he puts it on amongst other things. And it's partly through these gifts, used rightly, that the hobbits survive uh, and and save Middle Earth. 
using power that is not their own. So when Paul talks about living a life following Christ, he uh, uses various descriptions of that. He likes to talk about putting on Christ. Ephesians talks about putting off your old self. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. And putting on a new self, created in the likeness of God. And Paul's instructions uh, for standing firm in the midst of spiritual battle are actually just a reframing of that same idea. He's saying the same thing in a different way. He says, uh, put on Christ when you go into battle. And our hang-up, I think, is that most often when somebody says, be like Jesus, put on Christ, the picture we most immediately get in our minds is of a, of a pleasant storyteller with a child on their, on their knee. We say, how's that going to help in the battle? We have to remember, uh, for instance, the, the picture that the prophet Isaiah paints of the mission of the Messiah as one of a vanquishing warrior. You can read in Isaiah 59 where it says, The Lord saw and it displeased him that there was no justice. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak for he will come like a, like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Some of that language is almost the exact same language that Paul uses, Paul borrows, to talk about the armor of God. He says believers should put on, spirit, should, should put on armor for a spiritual battle, uh, but the only perfect righteousness that the Scripture talks about is Jesus's. Jesus has right standing before God. It's his breastplate. Uh, and, and yet, he is offering you and me that we might uh, put it on. He's offering to let you put on uh, the, the helmet of salvation, which belongs to him. He earned it, but he wants you to protect your head. Let's take a look just at a few, not all, of the pictures that Paul paints and see what some of this might mean for us in the heart of battle. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. It makes it sound like the first thing we should remember is that not all of the work in resisting temptation and standing firm and being faithful takes place in the moment of crisis, on the evil day. It says, having done all, and then taking up the armor of God. It's a reminder that there's, that there's daily patterns of godly living, spiritual discipline, deep connection with the body of Christ, uh, marinating yourself in God's word and in Christian, Christian community. All of these things are part of that doing all in preparation because you don't know when the day is coming. All of these are used by God to equip and prepare us for when the going gets tough. 14 says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. I'm told that a Roman so for a Roman soldier, um, what's most likely being referred to when Paul uses the word belt is less like that leather strap with a buckle that's holding up your pants right now. 
and more like a leather apron hung under the armor to protect the thighs and the other life-giving stuff that's down there. Kind of like a bulletproof jockey strap. So truth is, uh, truth, it says the belt of truth, and truth is a theme in the book of Ephesians. The truth of the gospel is the message that brings new life. And so it follows that being people of truth means proclaiming that gospel to others and probably more importantly, proclaiming it to ourselves in moments of distress. I mean, isn't that the meat and potatoes of most of our struggles and temptation? Uh, Hearing and struggling not to believe lies. Trying uh, not to believe things that are untrue, either about who God is and how he loves us, or about ourselves and what we're worth, or about what other people are doing or thinking or are worth in comparison to us. But what if in those moments we told ourselves the truth? I am justified in Christ. I don't need to prove myself. God thinks I'm worth the blood of his son. I'm not worthless. I have been chosen before the foundation of the earth. What these people think doesn't matter that much, etc. Preaching the truth of the gospel to ourselves in moments of difficulty, knowing the gospel so that we can, is like putting on bulletproof underwear. The passage goes on, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. One of the preeminent battles in a Christian life is one with what gets called works righteousness. This is the idea that what we do and how much good we do can save us and merit God's love. And, the, and, and works righteousness cuts both ways. Sometimes we're convinced that we're not worthy, that we're not welcome, that we don't measure up, that nothing that we can contribute will be useful. In other times, we're scandalized by hardship because we've been so good. We did everything right. How could this be happening? Both are ways of thinking uh, works righteousness and both get derailed when we realize that it is not our righteousness, our good works that merit God's favor and protect us, but Jesus's, his perfect obedience, his resistance of the devil, his fulfilling the law, his spotless morality is given to us when we believe. He is right in his standing before God, and he gives us that position when we put our faith in him. Like a breastplate that protects your guts from swords and arrows, Jesus gives us his righteousness. How many of our struggles would truly be cast aside if we really believed that we didn't have to measure up to be loved? Verse 16 says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Faith is another theme in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, we're reminded that we are saved. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith, believing, is the way that we take hold of all that God wants to give to us. It's how we receive his grace, by faith. Lots of people, I'm told, that fought against uh, Roman soldiers... 
liked to stand far off with bows and arrows and shoot flaming arrows into the Roman army instead of taking them on in hand-to-hand combat. And so apparently this led to uh, Roman centurions uh, beginning to carry long body-length wooden shields that were draped in soggy animal pelts so that when arrows uh, landed on their shield, the, the stinky, wet uh, fur would extinguish the fire. Personal faith is taking beliefs, the tenets of the Christian faith, the message of the gospel, and making it your own. Taking a hold of the promises of God that, have, that, that someone can show you are true from the scriptures, but that you need to believe and make true for you. Taking a hold of the promises of God for yourself, not just in general or in theory. God says that the way to extinguish doubt and despair, the way to endure persecution, uh, all of these which are very personal attacks, the way is to believe the promises of God in Christ, not in general, not in theory, not philosophically, not for someone else, but for me. Christ died for me. Do I believe that? He set me apart at the beginning before the foundations of the earth. Do I believe that? What does that mean for this momentary struggle? Verse 17 finally says, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Frodo had a little sword and it had a name. It was called Sting. Wasn't actually uh, very impressive, as I, I, according to some accounts, but it was made by elves, and it was endowed with an elvish power that made it glitter with blue flame at its edges whenever evil was near. Sting was not only useful in regular battle, but it also was powerful enough to easily cut through the webs of the evil spiders of Mirkwood. When ta- now, now Paul turns to talk about the only offensive weapon referenced in the armor of God. And he calls it the sword of the Spirit. And then he's very quick to identify that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, the Scriptures. They tell us who God is and what he has done in Christ. They reveal his character and his will and his plan. Very literally, they instruct us on how to identify good from evil. Knowing scripture will allow you to recognize deception, help you identify lies, like a glowing blue blade on a sword. Being saturated in God's word is a, is a route towards discernment, an increasing intuitive sense of wisdom and goodness growing out of the experience of being saturated in truth. Scripture is not magic. It is not, uh, it is not prescribed in this passage or anywhere else that if you know the right verses, you can say them like a spell or a magic charm to protect yourself. What Paul is saying is that you will need equipment 
If you want to be able to cut through and dissect the webs of false teaching and dangerous ideologies and deceptive invitations and centrifuge that go on all around us, the scripture, God's word, gives us that kind of equipment to stand strong in the midst of the fight. So the point, I don't think, of Paul's writing or of preaching a sermon on it like this is to freak everyone out and have us looking for demons and devils under every bush. And let's, uh, and, and let's not uh, let this let us off the hook and blame everything on the devil. The scripture tells us that our own sin and the influence of the world around us are equal enemies of our faith. But going to the other extreme and ignoring or denying this significant part of the scriptures because it's too fantastic or it's outdated or it seems mythical leaves you as a believer with a massive blindside. As philosopher Charles Baudelaire said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. <laughs> 